Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, Fear by Ahmed Abdallah. First published in Detective Story Magazine, February 4th, 1919. Uh, the copy we're reading from is from uh, the 1920 publication in a, mag- uh, in a collection called Wings, Tales of the Psychic. Um, but that's not where I found this story. Um, I found it in a place where I often find things, which is LibriVox, the website for public domain audiobooks. Are you a LibriVox listener, Eric? <laughs> I do not listen much because um, to anything, not just LibriVox, because I love to take notes with my own hand as I read. Mm. Um, I'm I'm a real audio guy. I I the thing is is I I think about uh, why that is. I'm not sure exactly, but I know I just love reading so much and I want to read all the time. But when I'm doing the dishes or <laughs> you know, uh, driving down the road, it's very hard to hold a book in hand and not destroy the book or destroy yourself on on the drive. So indeed, I think that's how I got into it. And um, they have a bunch of short story collections, uh, and I go to the sections I like, you know, the science fiction sections, the horror sections, the mystery sections. And I just came across this story, um, didn't know anything about it other than the title. And then I pressed play on the file and I was like, I love this story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I've, I've, uh, I've got a prepared a little excerpt so we can all hear it. And as to why, but I want to talk a little bit about, about this is why I submitted it to you for your consideration, and it took some some talking to you <laughs> yes, to get it you did. to it did. Uh, to, to come to the conclusion we should maybe talk about this as a show. Um, so when I submitted this story to you, I I did it as a text, I believe, right? Absolutely. And and your takeaway from it was what? I thought that it was not very well written. It was predictable. And um, there wasn't much depth to the story. Um, having reread it a bit, I am not as negative as I was. Uh, I think there are interesting things to discuss in the work, but I don't find the story itself to be how shall I say? Some things are good to talk about. Other things are good and good to talk about. I, right, th- right. I think this is good to talk about. I didn't really find it good, even on rereading. Yeah. So it's very pulpy. I mean, it, it's from that period. It's it's the the guy who wrote it. This is um, he's not super famous now. He he was a headliner in major fiction magazines at the time. But there's there's a reason a lot of those headliners are rightly forgotten, I think. Um, he is, though, the, the writer of The Thief of Baghdad. Yeah, the film. The film. Uh, Douglas Fairbanks film, which is quite famous. Um, right. Um, you know, he, he's got a few claims to fame. Um, but most of them are, uh, I would say, complete lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hard to say exactly. But... Um, so I want to read this crazy first sentence, 
Um, and then you can just sort of hear a lot of what we're talking about here and just in my reading of it. But I, I also want to talk, I, I should go back a little bit and say, you know, I do read text on the page, but my preferred method of reading text on the page is to read it aloud, you know, get a bunch of students together, get, get them all reading it with me, right? Aloud so that we can hear the sounds of the sentences. You can make notes there as well. But it's sort of an audio experience. That was not the first way I, I experienced this. But I, I want to read just this crazy first sentence, and then um, maybe we'll hear the 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 way it should be performed. <laughs> so, Fear by Ahmed Abdullah. The fact that the man whom he feared had died ten years earlier did not, in the least, lessen Stuart McGregor's obsession of horror, of a certain grim expectancy every time he recalled that final scene just before Farragut Hutchinson disappeared in the African jungle that stood spectrally motionless as it forged out of some green, some blackish green metal in the haggard moonlight. And so it's like overwritten, over pulpy, um, and kind of hard to follow. I agree. I, I think it has other flaws as well. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the next paragraph, it goes, it's even worse, right? Uh, or It's the pall of sudden Stygian darkness all around, the night sounds of soft-winged obscene things flapping lazily overhead or brushing against the furry trees that held the woolly heat of the tropical day, the slimy, swishy things that <laughs> glided and crawled and wiggled underfoot and the vibrant growl of a hunting lioness that began in a deep basso and peaked to a shrill, high-pitched, ridiculous... <laughs> ridiculously inadequate trouble that's that's just the middle of a sentence right you haven't even gotten to the verb yet i know it's it's, it's kind of crazy that this story is worth our attention but i want you to hear uh my now friend john feaster um and his narration of just a minute of fear and after uh, i would say not even a minute of you listening to the first part of it and hearing my argument you agreed that we should do a show on this, so I hope our listeners can understand as well. Let's have a listen to this one minute from The Middle of Fear. He spoke of it to many, but only to Father Aloysius O'Donnell, the priest who obfuscated in the little Gothic church around the corner on Ninth Avenue, did he tell the whole truth. Did he confess that he had cheated? Of course I cheated, he said. Of course! and with a sort of mocking bravado. What would you have done, Padre? The priest, who was old and wise and gentle, thus not at all sure of himself, shook his head. I don't know, he replied. I don't know. Well, I do know. You would have done what I did. You wouldn't have been able to help yourself. Then, in a low voice, and you would have paid, as I pay every day, every minute, every second of my life. Regret Repentance, murmured the priest, but the other cut him short. Repentance! Nothing! I regret! Nothing! I repent! Nothing! I do the same thing tomorrow! It isn't that, oh, that, what you call it, sting of consciousness that's driving me crazy! It's fear! Fear of what? asked Father O'Donnell. Fear of Farragut Hutchinson, who is dead! <laughs> 
I got a big smile plastered all over my face. I just love his narration. That's terrific, Jesse. Isn't it? When I was a kid, uh, on car rides, my folks would turn on the radio, and I'm old enough that I remember hearing uh, The Shadow and mm. uh, Johnny Dollar. Uh, those old radio dramas were, in fact, vocal melodramas. Mm-hmm. They had the the audio equivalent of the villain twirling the tips of his mustache. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, hearing hearing your friend read Fear, I no longer read it, hear it as a drama. I hear it as a melodrama. Mm-hmm. And if if the words could have gotten me to subvocalize the same way that Feaster vocalizes. I think I would have thought of this this uh, story as being in a slightly different genre. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, oh, my goodness, how overwritten it is, I would think, ah, what terrific stage directions for such <laughs> yeah. a melodrama. It is. I mean, you imagine reading this on the – like in 1919, you're, you're riding the train home from work, right? You, you got your magazine at the newsstand earlier in the day and – Suddenly, like you just you, any of these lines that uh, you know just seems sort of crazily overwritten, and sort of the plot is. I mean, you virtually expect this to be you know two guys being boiled in an African you know pot sort of story. It's <laughs> not exactly stereo, what happens. Yeah, the, the the old cartoony idea of yeah. cannibals. Yeah, cannibals. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's so much full of that sort of just sort of generic uh ooh taboo sort of thing but uh it's fun to read aloud as he shuffled it had seemed to him as if his brain was frantically telegraphing to his fingers as if all those delicate little nerves that ran from the back of his skull down to his fingertips were throbbing a clicking little chorus do it mac do it mac do it mac with a maddening syncopated rhythm i'm like yeah, it's still it's still not great writing, but it flows. It flows when you when you sort of uh, and the reason John Feaster is my friend now is because I heard his recording on this. I'm like, this guy's awesome. I gotta make friends with him. It's the same way I found you, Eric. I said, this guy's awesome. I gotta make friends with him. So track him down on the internet somehow, and. And, like, he is awesome. You can so just sort of tell. Maria Morovsky's awesome. Ahmed Abdullah, I don't know if he's awesome. But John Feaster's awesome, right? <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that compliment, Jesse. Uh, as the mayor of your audible town, you are awesome, too. Oh, thank you, sir. It is the truth. I, this story raises an, an enormous question about the difference between reading oneself and having someone read to you, mm-hmm. which in a way underlies the premise behind what we have been doing together for these many wonderful, to me, wonderful episodes. Mm-hmm. I read it, you read it, but in effect, we read it to each other as we we share our insights. What what Mr. Feaster is doing is sharing his insights. His reading is not just reading the story. His reading is a genuine interpretation of the story. He is making, for me, melodrama 
whereas previously I had just seen overwritten drama. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, frankly, whether or not the story, the words on the page, which I have before me, I don't know if the words on the page actually justify what he did, but they certainly can serve as fodder for what he did. And in mm -hmm. that regard, uh, by golly, thank you, Ahmed Abdullah, or whatever your real name is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for having provided a script for Jim Feaster to give us a, an audio story. Yeah, you know, um, I, one of the when when you told me your first reaction to this, I I made this argument to you, and it was it was about you know how I I used to write a lot about uh, I used to write a lot of reviews of audiobooks, and I came up with theories as to why books would be good or bad, and I, one of them was that uh, a good a great audio narrator cannot save a bad book, but a good book can be ruined by a bad narrator. So it was like, it was, you know, you, you can only bring uh, up, you can only bring it up to the level of the book is the idea that a good narrator can just bring out what's in the text. Um, and then that, you know, a good text can be ruined by a bad narrator, you know, mispronunciations, the wrong emphasis, um, just, you know, the wrong kind of accent or, you know, just hard to understand what you're saying. Uh, there's all sorts of ways. And and yet I found this amateur, this guy who, you know, just has a regular day job but likes reading short stories aloud, uh, putting them up for free on the Internet. And he blew that I, that whole thesis out of the water. <laughs> right? You know, like just right in the beginning of the story. And I'm like, that's amazing, right? Yeah. Um, it is about storytelling. And story, you know – for the longest time, all of the oldest stories, you know, the uh, I'm sure the Bible's that way, but the, the you know Homer is not the guy who made up uh, the epics that are the Odyssey and the Iliad, right? He's just the guy accredited with writing them down, and that long tradition of vocal performance, the storytelling through the voice, was the traditional way of st telling stories, and we can almost find that there must have been people who were masters of it. You know, um, if you'll allow a, a small correction, Homer didn't write it down. Homer, remember, is considered to be a blind poet. Mm -hmm. Homer is the guy who dictated the Odyssey right. and the Iliad. There's work... Uh, most frequently uh, associated with a book called Singer of Tales by Albert Lord um, that tries to compare the difference to figure out how we can tell what is a true oral epic and what is, in fact, a scribal epic. Mm -hmm. uh, what Lord did was he took talk to Balkan uh, tale tellers who still told stories from memory a uh, long, long, you know, it took days to tell the story the way it would take, you know, multiple sittings to tell the Odyssey or the Iliad. And he recorded their, their unfolding of these epics. Um, and everyone around claimed that these epics were as they had heard them before, that these were spectacular feats of memory. But mm. what Lord was able to show was that, the 
oral epics, the true oral epics that he was getting, I mean, he was hearing them, had what he called formulae, like Rosie Finger Dawn, right? Or mm-hmm, yep. uh, Wiley Odysseus, right? It had these formulae. So what you get in one of these true oral epics is a skeletal plot where the major episodes are known. Then you get these formulae to help us define the individual characters or certain events. Then the teller of tales is able to extemporize a way of making this work so that it sounds like it's what you heard before because you're not really paying attention to minor variations along the way. Um, This is like a Calypso singer being able to be given any subject and come out with a Calypso song as if he had, he knew the song previously, but he's extemporizing it because he knows the rhythm, certain key phrases and so on. Uh, What Lord said was now we can take a look at other epics. And if we see places where this use of formulae and so on breaks down, that's scribal intervention. Mm-hmm. Now, what I would like to suggest here um, is that this text that we have from Ahmed Abdullah, this is scribal. He wrote it to begin with. We don't have enough of the, the, the actual phrases that will make this story resonate for us. To go back to that first paragraph that you Mm -hmm. looked at, um, Farragut disappeared into the African jungle that stood spectrally motionless as if forged out of some blackish green metal, metal in the haggard moonlight. Well, you know, Abdullah is reaching for the kinds of atmospheric language uh, phrases that H.P. Lovecraft gives us. Yep. But, but Haggard Moonlight is really a pretty miserable example of, yep. of pathos. And the jungle looks like it is forged out of blackish green metal. I mean, I've seen jungles. I've been in jungles. I've been in rainforests. And I'll tell you, they not, never look forged. Right. They just don't look forged. And I don't know what a blackish green metal is supposed to be, except maybe, I don't know, pyrites. Um, This makes no sense when you start thinking about it. It doesn't resonate the way rosy fingered Dawn does. This is scribal. But what Mr. Feaster has done is given it the reading that you would most want to have around that campfire. Mm -hmm. So even though I would not have listened to his story and said, ah, yes, this is an ancient received story. I still feel the melodrama. I would like to suggest an, a complimentary supplementary, I guess, no complimentary, um, principle to go with your notion about how, what you can do with a text when you become an audio text. And that's this. When people read a text, their eyes can flick back and forth. They can stop. You and I both did that reading this very first long sentence, which is the whole of a paragraph. And as you said, it's not even easy to follow. Right? It's no. just, he just goes on and on. So in a way, we have to stop and pay attention. And unfortunately, this prose and this plot do not bear uh, well under intelligent <laughs> scrutiny. But when you listen to the audio version, you don't stop. 
That's right. You've That's got this voice carrying you on. So there's one other thing in that experience that you don't get here unless you want to produce it yourself. And the text doesn't make me want to produce it, but I'm really glad it made Jim Feaster want to produce it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's there's a, a sort of a falsity all the way through the story. I mean, that <laughs> it starts with the second sentence, right? After he describes the forest as, or the jungle as being blackish green, he, he, he says... It was reconstructed. The whole scene seemed unreal. <laughs> Almost oppressively, ludicrously theatrical. It's like he's critiquing his own story here. Um, and and I was thinking, well, that's kind of... Uh, my subsequent researches on Ahmed Abdullah, that's his whole shtick, right? That's not even his real name. It's just a name he made up. Um, he... If you look at his biography on, you know, Wikipedia, it says, you know, he's re- he wrote his own autobiography, self-written biography, and uh, <laughs> it says something there. It says, not verified by independent sources. And he said, well, who cares, right? But once you start looking at it, you say, this is all bullshit. Listen to this. As was frequent among new immigrants in the 1910s and 20s, Ahmed Abdullah claimed descent from the Russian imperial family. He famously stated he was born Alexander Nikolaevich Romanov in 1881 in Yalta, Russia, to Grand Duke Nicholas Romanov. And then it says, a non-existent cousin of Tsar Nicholas Romanov (laughs) and Princess Nurmalhal Durrani the daughter of the emir of Afghanistan. So he's saying he's from two royal families, right? After his mother's attempts to poison her husband due to his multiple affairs, they divorced, leaving their son and two other children to their maternal grandparents. At the age of 12, he was sent to Eton and then to Oxford. Wow, to be educated. There are no records about him in either school. (laughs) He claimed that although he was born Russian Orthodox, he was raised as a Muslim by his uncle who adopted him. Upon graduation, he said he joined the British Army and rose to the rank of acting colonel during his 17-year military career. He claimed to have served in Afghanistan, Tibet, from 1903 to 1904, and with the Young Husband Expedition in Africa. And then, citation? Where? China, in the British Indian Army in India, and was a colonel in the Cavalry Regiment for one year in the Turkish Army as a British spy. He claimed that most of his time he spent in the military as a spy because of his wide oriental knowledge um, of the Middle East customs and religions and traveled widely in Russia, Europe, and Africa and the Middle East and China and spoke many languages and dialects. He claimed he was made a British citizen by an act of parliament and convinced, convicted by Germans during the First World War of being a spy. <laughs> so oh. um, maybe some of that's true, but I was thinking about this in rereading the story I'm thinking, oh, so what, what in here is true? So there are really a people called the Bakoda, right? Uh, maybe we should sort of outline the plot a little bit. Why don't you do that? Okay. So there's these two guys. They're Americans. They go to Africa. They rob a local uh, shrine while the warriors are out, uh, the Bakoda people. And they're um, desecrated they, as well. Desecrated, steal diamonds and gold dust. And are fearful when the uh, 
the warriors catch up with them and, and say that one of you has to die. Uh, the god, the juju gods have decided that um, you, one of you has to die. You get to choose who. Um, our main character kills the other, well, tricks the other guy uh, using a card cheat and then feels guilty about it until uh, the time when he, for some reason, collects a whole bunch of African artifacts later in, in New York and then um, one day discovers his friend's tattooed skin on the back of a drum that he collected, inside of which was a uh, snake, which has poisoned him, and he dies. That's that's the whole story. Kind of a stupid story. But I was thinking that this is actually a ripoff of uh, a good story that we did talk about already. Um, it's The Mark of the Beast right. by Rudyard Kipling. And I also thought noticed, oh, yeah, Rudyard Kipling had some of these same things in his biography, if you think about it. Rudyard Kipling was raised Muslim because he was raised by uh, the Muslim family uh, that worked for his family, right? Um, and his first language was the language of his local people um, in India. And then he did go on to a, sort of a distinguished career as opposed to Ahmed Abdullah's sort of semi-distinguished career, right? Um, and had many sort of uh, prominent experiences that... This this guy's a knockoff is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. Uh, I also noticed that and checked the publication dates. The Mark of the Beast is 1908. This story mm -hmm. is 1919. Rudyard Kipling is one of the most um, prominent writers in the English speaking world uh, at this time. Uh, it would be easy enough to come upon uh, his his writing. Uh, also. And this is one of the places where I think the story has some interest for me. Um, Kipling is an imperialist. Um, he is famous for having coined the phrase white man's burden, mm -hmm. uh, which is to look down on anyone with a, a less than uh, less than purely white skin, um, at least in the racial stereotypes. However, it's also true that in stories like Gunga Din uh, or ep ballads like Gunga Din um, or the Ballad of East and West, what Kipling does is show that despite the fact that the whites are obviously better than the non-whites, there are people among the non-whites who are better than any particular white. Right. You're a better man than I am. Gunga Din. This story really is full of stereotypes. It is badly written. It's not very thoughtful. And there are lots of racial stereotypes. He's got his he's got his Africa all wrong. The Bakota live in Gabon, which is in the, the western uh, on the Atlantic Ocean on the, the west uh, about halfway up Africa, whereas most of the relics that he collects to remind him of his time in Africa are actually from South Africa. Yep. Um, you know, he, get, he gets his, Abdullah's getting his, his geography and cultural history wrong. Um, but, but um, he kind of lets us know, despite all of this discussion of the whites doing this and they go and they steal here, that they are in fact stealing that mm -hmm. they, in fact, are murderers. Mm -hmm. This is a story which 
happens entirely in memory, which is one of the things that I dislike about the story. Because if I were trying to forget something, I wouldn't think about it every day and, and get artifacts of my past and have them up in my house. I mean, yep. I would sort of like try to look at something else and think about something else. So this is this is the clunkiest kind of storytelling when he thought about what happened and let me give you exposition. And then when he thought about it again and let me give you more exposition, it's really clunky storytelling. But underlying this stereotypical storytelling where whites are better than anybody else, what this fellow has done, whatever Abdullah's real origins may be, he has made out these white Americans to actually be the worst of the worst. And what he shows is that having depredated the world of the, the true believers, those Bokoto with their, their shrine, not only does someone get killed, but he becomes empowered to kill from beyond the grave. That in, in a way, when people say, Slavery affects both the slave and the slaveholder. You are made something worse by being a slaveholder. What Abdullah is saying, in a way, as Kipling sometimes says, you are made worse by being a colonizer. You are made worse by being imperial. You are made worse by being a thief, a racist. This is a New York story. This, this priest to whom he confesses, is in a little Gothic church. You know, we know what Gothic literature is, right? It's the beginning of modern horror literature. He's in a Gothic church over on Ninth Avenue. This is this is a New York story, a land of immigrants. And it's saying, if you accept them and work with them, you can live. If you don't, you can kill any particular one, but you're going to get it from beyond the grave. This is not so much, I think, an ethical position as it is a practical position, which makes for an interesting essay, I suppose. But in Jim Feaster's telling, makes for an exciting listen. Indeed. But there's always more to say. <laughs>